When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to the Battleground podcast with me, Saul David, and Patrick Bishop. The big news from the front line this week is that while Ukrainian forces continue to expand their bridgehead on the east, that is the left bank of the Dnipro River in Kherson Oblast, southern Ukraine, Russia is trying to regain a theatre-wide initiative with several simultaneous offensive operations in eastern Ukraine. They are, according to the respected think tank, the Institute for the Study of War, unlikely to be successful. One of the reasons why is a lack of manpower, an issue underlined by British military intelligence this week when it upgraded its estimate of Russian military losses to 300,000 killed and wounded. That's an astonishing number, isn't it, Saul? Meanwhile, Ukraine's main military effort over the past seven days seems to be part of a wider strategy for the winter to interdict Russian supply routes by using missiles, drones and partisan attacks to strike ships, ammunition facilities command and control centres, and high-value targets well behind the lines. And on the diplomatic front, mixed messages are coming out of Germany. On the one hand, the Schultz coalition government has promised to double Germany's military aid to Ukraine to $7 billion. But on the other, Germany's defence minister, Boris Pistorius, has warned that the EU is unlikely to meet its promised target of delivering 1 million artillery shells and missiles to Ukraine by March. We'll discuss the significance of all this and what developments we might expect to see in the coming months. But first, what's been going on on the battlefield, Saul? Well, as we mentioned a couple of weeks ago, Ukraine has now established firm bridgeheads uh, in at least five positions on the east, that is the left bank of the Dnipro River in Kherson Oblast, and is beginning to expand them with the probable intention of linking them together. Now, the first one, as we already mentioned, was at Krinky, 30 kilometers northeast of Kherson and two kilometers inland from the river. But since then, there have been others at Poima, Pishanivka, Pidstepny, and most recently, Kozaki Lahari, uh, the last one being 23 kilometers east and two kilometers inland from the river. And already, according to recent reports, Ukrainian forces have established continuous control of positions from Poima to the Antonivsky Road Bridge north of Oleski, seven kilometers south of Kherson, and have cut a nearby road in at least two places. Now, needless to say, this is giving Russian mill bloggers cause for alarm. And they've been criticizing the military's failure to eradicate these bridgeheads. This was followed by an absolutely bizarre episode at the weekend when two outlets of Russian state media, Rio Novosti and TASS, reported that Russian forces were pulling back from the Dnipro River in a tactical withdrawal. Within minutes, the news alerts were withdrawn without explanation, presumably on the orders of the Ministry of Defense. The incident, writes Joe Barnes of The Telegraph, suggests a breakdown in communication between the military, Kremlin and state media over how to report Ukraine's improving position on the left bank of the Dnipro. Now, only yesterday, there's a new development on this. Vladimir Saldo, the governor of the Russian-occupied Kherson region, 
became the first official to admit that the Ukrainians have indeed established what he described as a small position on the eastern bank of the river. But he went on to say that Russian units were about to rain down, as he put it, fiery hell upon them. The Ukrainians, on the other hand, seem fairly confident that they can stay in those positions. A spokesperson for Ukraine's southern military command called for, and I quote, informational silence, which would allow us to report later on great successes. What is not in doubt is that these lodgments have left Moscow rattled, and they might, as I've said before, offer Ukraine a real chance of further progress on the battlefield, even before the winter is over. Yeah, we weren't sure at the beginning where we saw whether this, these were just kind of probing attacks or even sort of propaganda operations, really, more like raids than genuine uh, attempts to take and hold ground. But it certainly looks like that is what's going on there. And while Ukraine continues to make some progress on the eastern bank of the Dnipro, the Russians seem to be responding by launching attacks of their own, which are designed to regain the initiative right across the theatre. Uh, the question is, are they actually making any progress? No, according to Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky. Well, you would expect him to say that. He says that uh, these Russian assaults, which are in the eastern Donetsk region, including around Avdiivka, have been very intense, but they were playing into Ukrainian hands. He said Russia is already losing men and equipment near Avdiivka faster and on a larger scale than, for example, near Bakhmut. Uh, withstanding their pressure is extremely difficult. He does admit that. He says the more Russian forces that are destroyed near Avdiivka, the worse the overall situation will be for the enemy and the overall course of the war. Well, the ISW agrees with that, saying that Russian forces will likely struggle to fully regain the initiative across the theater, and Ukrainian forces are continuing their own offensive operations and making tactical-level gains along the front, particularly in western Zaporizhia Oblast and on the, uh, as we've said, on the east, uh, the left bank uh, of Kherson Oblast. So as a result, uh, the Russians will have to make a decision between, between continuing to attack in the east and diverting troops to defend further south. It's a kind of either-or. Um, why can't they do both? Well, because they've suffered so many casualties, as Saul mentioned uh, at the top. How many? Well, if you believe uh, British military intelligence, and I think their estimates have been pretty credible so far, haven't they, Saul? They, they tend to uh, to be you know, just uh, slightly on the side of the Conservative. The number they've come up with is, is almost unbelievable. 300,000 killed and wounded already. Then in equipment losses, we're talking about 7,100 armoured vehicles, two th of I don't know whether that's including or separate from 2,400 main battle tanks, 93 fixed-wing air aircraft, 132 helicopters, 16 naval vessels of all classes, and over 1,300 artillery systems. And now these fig figures were released in Parliament by the Armed Forces Minister James Heapy. And uh, separate from that are the losses among the mercenary element, which of course is a significant part of the Russian armed forces, which alone will total tens of thousands. So once again, we ask ourselves this key question, how long can an army hemorrhaging at such a rate keep going? We return to comparative figures. America lost 58,000 killed in 10 years of fighting in Vietnam. So, you know, this is the great mystery, isn't it, Saul? 
Exactly. And let's not forget that Ukraine's degradation of Russia's ability to fight is not just taking place on the battlefield. Our good friend, fellow Brian, always says it's a mistake to look at the battlefield, even though we're called battleground. We like to think we cover all areas of warfare. And his argument is actually it's the degradation of the enemy's ability to fight behind the lines that is the real key. And he wrote a whole book about it and said that basically the Second World War was won on that basis, even though people like myself and you, Patrick, will insist on giving the human drama in the actual battles. Now, but let's get back to Ukraine's uh, main strategy this winter. And you could argue that it's to attack Russian military logistics and other high-profile assets in rear areas of occupied Ukraine and Russia. Certainly, these attacks seem to be intensifying This week, for example, Ukrainian military intelligence derailed a freight train carrying mineral fertilizer in Rizhan Oblast in Russia, complicating Russian military logistics for the near future, set fire to a gunpowder factory in Tambov Oblast, and damaged a plant that builds missiles in Kolomna, Moscow Oblast. Now, all of these attacks were actually on Russian territory. Elsewhere, Ukrainian partisans attacked a Russian military headquarters in occupied Melitopol and killed at least three Russian. FSB and Rosgardia officers. And here's another another one, which has sort of slightly slipped under the radar, Patrick, um, but I spotted this week. Amphibious attack drones were used to sink two small landing ships of the Russian Black Sea Fleet in Uzka Bay, Crimea, obviously in a location further east from Sevastopol that the Russians thought was safe. One of the ships, according to Ukrainian military intelligence, was loaded with armored vehicles. And according to a Russian mill blogger, the Ukrainians also attempted a Neptune cruise missile strike on naval and FSB bases in Crimea, but that was not successful. Now, a spokesman for the Ukrainian ground forces noted that their main task was to disrupt Russian lines of communication and that these disruptions, coupled with the onset of winter, would freeze Russian offensive operations and create issues for the supply of food, water, ammunition and winter materials to Russian forces. So what's your take on all of this, Patrick? Do you think it's a sensible strategy, given that the anticipated Ukrainian breakthrough in Western Zaporizhia, which we've mentioned many times before, uh, that is with its intention to strike Melitopol, does not look likely anytime soon? I think that's the case, Saul. Uh, I think what we'll see is a slackening of the tempo, even in these sort of small tactical, smallish tactical operations in Western Kherson Oblast. And we'll see more of this sort of stuff of, of hitting uh, behind the lines, trying to weaken both capability and morale, uh, the enemy's capability and morale, and very importantly, husbanding resources. Now, I've just been talking to someone who knows quite a lot about this, and they're saying that there's, there's no doubt about it, exhaustion is setting in. This is someone who's just come back from Ukraine. Uh, and they, uh, It's interesting, we don't have any up-to-date figures on Ukrainian casualties, do we, like the uh, MOD has issued for the Russians? But they're going to be big. Now, this friend of mine was saying that he visited a company in the last couple of days, and he said there are only seven of the original 100 men who were took the field uh, a, a whole year ago. I mean, they're not all dead. They're, they're, they're wounded as well. But that's, a, that's pretty sort of savage numbers, isn't it? And the feeling that he was getting was that morale is, is still reasonably high given the circumstances, but exhaustion is beginning to set in. There will be an appetite for another big push in the spring but if that doesn't work, then we're into that situation that General Zaluzhny predicted uh, in his interview with The Economist, saying that you simply get to the point where you're running out of 
of human beings to fight the war, whereas you know that is not the problem that Russian Russia has. So I think all this adds up to a, a sort of diplomatic scenario where both sides, or rather Ukraine in particular, may not be looking for a diplomatic solution or for negotiations at this point, but the pressure on them from outside, from beady-eyed big powers, particularly America, looking at the situation, thinking, well, you know, making the calculation Ukraine can't win this, and then applying applying pressure to that ally to actually start thinking seriously about negotiations. Now, I'm, I was intrigued by this meeting that Joe Biden had with Xi Jinping uh, the other day, I think it was yesterday, actually, in uh, San Francisco for the Asia-Pacific Summit. Uh, now, they had a, a private meeting in which uh, it was reported that Ukraine was uh, discussed. Now, I think uh, there was some progress there. They've decided to restore this high-level military hotline, which was cut last year after Nancy Pelosi's visit to Taiwan. Then there was that row over Chinese spy balloons, but but relations have definitely on the mend, it would seem. And I think what we might be seeing here is that China will be brought into place some kind of role brokering a piece. They're the only big power that really has any control over what Russia does or doesn't do. The presidential election is coming up. This is a big opportunity for Joe Biden to um, show you know, his competence, his statesmanship, which, which in his good moments he's very good at by getting a peace deal in before the November elections. These are just a, you know these are random you know sort of thoughts, uh, but I think uh, I wouldn't be at all surprised if we see China edging onto the diplomatic center stage, hand in hand with America, to try and bring about some kind of peace perhaps before the before the spring yeah all interesting thoughts patrick i you know my personal view is uh, and given that i've been giving some relatively upbeat news today not not because i'm searching for it but because just because there has been particularly with this move across the dnipro river i think we're a long way from either side frankly uh being in a position to go to their people putin doesn't really need to go to his people but there are you know important power brokers in russia he's he's going to have to satisfy with any kind of peace deal and be able to sell it to them uh, certainly the Ukraine is a long way from that. They may well be exhausted, but they are absolutely determined to get back certainly most of the land that they held prior to the big invasion uh, in 2022, which has started this major aspect of the conflict, even though it's been rumbling since uh, since 2014. So China may well be interested in, and, and America ultimately, in working out some kind of negotiations. But I think we're a long way from either of the main players being in a position genuinely to respond to that. I think both of them are waiting to see whether militarily they, they can actually gain the upper hand. Yeah. And the big question here, Patrick, uh, America and elsewhere, is whether or not distracted by the war in Gaza and also uh, issues over the long-term relations with China, they will continue to provide Ukraine with military support it needs to defeat Russia. I mean, what, what do you think are the possibilities here? Yeah, well, this is the big question, isn't it, Saul? Ultimately, Ukraine's war, its capacity to fight the war on the level that it's fighting it at the moment, depends on outside support. So that is uh, what we should be watching very closely. So uh, interesting news coming out of Germany, encouraging signs at one level. Olaf Scholz agreed in principle to double the country's military aid for Ukraine next year to 8 billion euros. That would seem a very encouraging sign. Uh, they're also going to lift Germany's defence spending to 2.1% of GDP. That's beyond the 2% pledged by all NATO members. Um, Germany's already Ukraine's biggest backer in Europe, second only to the US. And 
safe rights provided 1717 billion euros in aid. That's a hell of a lot, including those leopard tanks, Marder armored fighting vehicles, Iris T and Patriot anti missile systems, Gepard anti aircraft guns, multiple rocket launchers, etc., etc. But at the same time, it was also reported this week that an EU plan to spend up to 20 billion euros on military aid for Ukraine was meeting with resistance from some member countries. And Boris Pistorius, the German defense minister, admitted that the EU is going to fail uh, on one of its pledges to deliver Ukraine a million artillery shells and missiles by March 2024. This is this is not because of, uh, of a lack of will, but just a l- lack of capacity. Uh, so far, 300,000 shells, uh, 155 millimeter, these are have been supplied uh, from uh, stockpiles, but buying or producing new ones has been a much harder proposition. So it's basically a question of production capacity. It's, uh, it can't actually keep up with this promise that's been made. So a bit of a worrying sign, eh? Yeah, it is worrying. I mean, we, we've had issues uh, coming out of Ukraine on their ability to you know, keep up with ammunition supply pretty much since the beginning of this expanded conflict. Um, so the fact that the EU is now suggesting that they're not going to be able to meet that target is, is going to be more trouble down the line for Ukraine. But I think far more importantly than that is is what the which way the sort of diplomatic signals are going. And certainly Ukraine had a boost uh, from our new foreign secretary, that of course is David Cameron, who just this morning uh, has visited Kiev in a sort of secret trip, so to speak, and said, we will continue to give you the moral support, the diplomatic support, the economic support, but above all, the military support you need, not just this year and next year, but for however long it takes. I mean, that's pretty categorical underpinning of the original Johnson line. And if we go all the way back to 2022, remember that Johnson was the first in there with this unequivocal support. So it's very good to hear that, I think, and I'm sure that will have cheered the Ukrainians. Um, One other interesting little bit of news, there are reports that the EU is about to ban the export of precision machine tools and key weapon manufacturing components to Russia, which might, if enforced, deal a significant blow to Russia's defense industrial base. Why? Because Russia has, or had a near total reliance on European and US produced precision machine tools. And therefore, that makes it particularly vulnerable to such sanctions. But you may well ask the question, Patrick, why has it taken Why hasn't this happened before? Yeah, it's extraordinary. Exactly. Isn't it? it's, it's absolutely bizarre. It would have said, you know, and, and clearly on, on the one hand, we were keen or therefore European countries were keen to keep selling this kit to Russia, but it, it does, you know, underline the sort of ludicrous scenario that, uh, you know, it's taken this long. All right, that's enough for part one. Do join us after the break when we'll be answering listeners' questions. Welcome back. Well, but before we move on to questions, listeners may remember the story last week of the good ship Askold is a Russian ship which was uh, very badly damaged in a Ukrainian attack while it was sitting in its berth in Crimea. We did have a bit of a, a laugh about that because uh, listeners will also remember that uh, Askold Krushelnitsky, a Ukrainian uh, of British origin, is a regular contributor to the show. He often writes in uh, with, with uh, pertinent comments and news from the front 
And so he's got in touch with us saying, yes, indeed. And we were saying it's rather amusing that Askold is very, very Ukrainian uh, that a Russian ship should be named after him. But he's enlightened us by saying it's named after Prince Askold, who may or may not have been a real ninth century ruler of what became the Kievan Rus Empire. Askold is considered by many to have been killed by pagan rivals because he'd been baptized. And it was because of this that my father gave me this name. I was born in London, and that name opened me up to all sorts of taunts by my cruel little schoolmates. They are easily imagined, but unnecessary to repeat for your podcast's refined listeners. Okay, so we won't go there. <laughs> anyway, so apparently there have been lots of Ask- ships called Askold in the, in the Russian Navy, including one that took part in Russia's uh, disastrous war against Japan in 1904. After the 1917 Russian Revolution, and Bolshevik coup, a ship called the Askold was seized in Kola Bay in 1918 by the Royal Navy and then pressed into service as HMS Glory the Fourth, and uh, served, uh, I think, probably up in uh, Scarpa Flow before she was scrapped in 1922. Who knew, eh? Well, you couldn't make it out, could you? And it doesn't <laughs> seem, uh, given some of those examples back, to be a particularly auspicious name for a yeah, warship. So, not uh, a lucky maybe- ship. <laughs> um, we've had another informational uh, message come through, actually, which relates to a question we were asked about the amount of uh, NATO equipped brigades that had actually already entered service. And I think it was me who said, well, uh, it, from what we were aware, quite a lot of it hadn't actually been in action. Well, we've got a message from Daniel Opstad, who's rather taken us to task on this. I think my broader point in in my defense was that most of the armor hadn't been used. Certainly, we've seen no sign of the Abrams, for example. But he goes through quite specifically, having used an article in Reuters, which was headlined, Who are the forces involved in Ukraine's counteroffensive? And he ticks off the various NATO brigades, the 47th mechanized, the 37th, 33rd mechanized, the 21st brigade, the 32nd mechanized brigade, 118th, 117th, and the 82nd Air Assault Brigade. And he's actually identified exactly where they fought in places like Kramina, Kharkiv, Robotine, Verbove. Um, And his overall point is that all in all, it seems that all of these new brigades have been deployed already. And uh, and since then, most have seen fierce fighting and probably losses. Uh, He goes on to say, uh, confirming the point I've just made, have not seen any sign of the Abrams tanks uh, and unsure which brigade has these. So thank you, Daniel. You know, rather depressing news, I suppose, but not surprising that these sort of key NATO troops have already been deployed. Uh, Peter Morris from the East Midlands writes, I find the increasingly negative narrative around the stalled counter-offensive, in quotes, incredibly frustrating. We're making expectations of the Ukrainian army expecting them to conduct a counteroffensive to NATO standards while not facilitating the key element to any action NATO would take, i.e. air superiority. Um, and he, his question is, why have we forgotten that what was essentially a small, under-resourced, second-rate army has managed to render what is cited as the world's second army, i.e. The, the Russian army, useless over, over a space of a few months, embarrassing and shaming Russia, on the world's stage. Well, this is a, a narrative that you would agree with, isn't it, Saul? Yeah, it, I mean, that, this is straight out of the Phil O'Brien playbook, you know, holding the Ukrainian army, which, as 
Peter Riley says, is relatively small and very poorly equipped at the start of this expanded conflict by NATO standards. Yes, we've trained those NATO brigades, but they don't, as uh, Peter says, have air superiority. And let's not forget the point we're making on today's program, which is that the Ukrainians very sensibly have realized it's not just a question of fighting on the battlefield. You've got to render the enemy incapable of fighting itself by interdicting all their supplies and ammunition and their ability, frankly, to even make kit in the first place, which, you know, is something they're trying to do by attacking places where military production is ongoing. And also, as I've made the point earlier on, the EU is trying to do its bit by by uh, stopping them using machine tools. So, you know, there's much more to the war effort than specifically is what is happening on the battlefield. And even there, you can't entirely say yet, Patrick, or I wouldn't say yet, that the counteroffensive is over because, as, as we've already mentioned on this episode, those advances made on the east bank of the Dnipro. Yeah. Um, I've got a fascinating one technical question here that I certainly can't answer, but you might be able to solve. This is from Ander, and he's uh, basically posing the question. He says he works in the world of autonomous equipment in mining. So he says, I can log in and to remote mine sites in Canada, South America, Papua New Guinea, and diagnose and operate the, equip- the equipment from Australia. And he's wondering whether, to some extent the high-tech equipment that the West has been sending to Ukraine rather than waiting for the training uptime and all that necessary preparations before you actually uh, start using it, whether that is being done remotely by Western troops, i.e. you know, their country of origin, it avoids all, and I'm thinking out loud here, but it avoids all sorts of uh, problems of them getting, uh, if you actually sent the personnel to the theatre, them getting captured and all the kind of political propaganda, et cetera, the problems that that would create and whether this is actually a possibility. Do you think that is with your knowledge of? uh... (laughs) Well, it's a fascinating question, isn't it? And if the answer is yes, and I'm not saying it is because I absolutely haven't heard confirmation of this, but but I I, I will just put out there the possibility that it might be yes. Uh, and in what sort of capacity? Well, the obvious area would be in the use of these drones. So some of the marine drones, for example, well, there's absolutely no reason why Ukrainians can't be operating them and probably are. But could they also uh, have assistance from Western special forces, that which we know from uh, uh, leaks uh, on the American side have been operating in, in Ukraine in some kind of advisory capacity. Could they also be assisting with, with these drone operations? Yes, of course it's possible. No confirmation of that. But the obvious area in which th- this sort of autonomous work is going on, but it's you know freely known, is, is in the various drones, aerial, river, and of course, marine drones. So yeah, yeah, I'd hold out the possibility, but I don't think it's a, it's a significant development, to be truthful. Now, I'm just going to read out one here from Christopher Pendergraft, which I think is an interesting point of view, especially with the uh, upcoming US presidential elections. Now, Christopher writes, I'm an extremely liberal American listener who wholeheartedly supports Ukraine's efforts in defending its sovereign territory. But he then goes on to say, When citizens of other countries high-handedly tell me what my nation should be doing with our military assets, it enrages me. It's so easy to give things away when someone else pays for them, isn't it? In this case, it isn't a faceless identity handing over billions of dollars in aid and equipment. It's me, my mother, father, siblings, friends, and neighbors who are footing 
the bill. So he's basically saying, you know, it's it's all very well for outside countries who aren't pulling their weight uh, to call on America to do more, but there are limits. I think that's what he's saying, and I think that these voices are actually going to ultimately going to have a uh, a negative effect on you know people like Christopher who fundamentally support the war if they're constantly being told they're not doing enough. I think there is, Christopher's definitely got a point here, hasn't he, Saul? I think, you know, America does get fed up with uh, being asked to solve all the world's problems, not uh, necessarily by interventions, but just by opening the taps for money and and weaponry and all the rest of it. And this is definitely something that uh, will have to be handled in the upcoming presidential election if support for Ukraine is going to be uh, in a main plank of, of Biden's foreign policy, then I think presentationally, they're going to have a few difficulties. Yeah. And this also plays into a point I've made a number of times on the podcast, which is that Europe has been very happy for a number of years to effectively let the American nuclear umbrella, but also American uh, military resources underpin the security of Western Europe. I mean, it's completely unacceptable that a lot of Western European countries were not spending at least 2%, which was the minimum set by NATO uh, as a NATO member, on their defence. And that needs to change. It is changing. We've even mentioned today that Germany is getting close to that figure now, given the extra support it's giving to Ukraine. And quite right too. But why has it taken this long? So I sympathise wholeheartedly with Christopher. And and it is a very good point. Even we ourselves have been guilty of that on the podcast a number of times. Patrick saying, why on earth can't America give Ukraine the military kit it needs to it's more a question of the fact that they've been drip feeding it rather than, uh, you know, uh, why can't we have it all in absolutely uh, one go? Uh, maybe a balance somewhere between the two. Having said all that, I just think in practical terms, if at the beginning the, the pledges had been made and the kit started arriving as soon as it was humanly possible for it to get there, it would have two effects. One, obviously, the military effect, but also a big psychological effect on Russia, letting them know from the very beginning that the West's will is strong and it's durable. And I think that might have had some consequences for how they conducted themselves afterwards, this constant testing of us. Do you remember all the the, the nuclear saber rap, rattling and all that? Maybe we, we might have seen a change in their posture earlier if they'd been presented with with actual physical, you know, material facts on the ground from the very outset. Good point. Now, we've got a curious uh, message from Tim in Guildford, who says his new wife is a Ukrainian refugee and, as he puts it, highly plugged in. Well, he goes on to say, uh, or at least to ask the question, why haven't you reported that Zaluzhny died this week, victim of a grenade which came with a birthday present of some booze? I was wondering if you would cover it. Perhaps news hasn't filtered through yet. Well, Tim, you're not entirely wrong in in this message. And we might be surprising a few listeners uh, to admit that. But actually, the reality is that one of Zaluzhny's aides was killed by this grenade. Now, it's quite important to distinguish between Zaluzhny himself, the head of Ukraine's armed forces, and one of his aides. But it is true that a major, Gennady Chastyakov, was killed by a grenade, which apparently was not, you know, deliberately intended to kill him. It was given as a, as a birthday present by another Ukrainian officer. And he was playing around with this grenade when unfortunately it went off. So it was a kind of tragic accident. And it did affect Zaluzhny very badly, actually, who who was quite close to this aid, as you might expect with these sort of relationships. It reminds me of the a relationship between Eisenhower and Butch, 
Patrick, I don't know if you know that, were some of the best sources from the Second World War in terms of what was going on in the high command, supreme headquarters, comes from Butch's diaries. And they were very close. They had a very close kind of personal relationship as well as a professional relationship. So I can well imagine that Zeluzhny was highly affected by Chastyakov's death. But just to emphasize, it's Chastyakov and not Zeluzhny that was killed. Okay, well, that's enough for this week. Do join us on Wednesday when we're returning again to Gaza. Goodbye.